But you know, as a kid, I had plenty of dreams. I was going to be an NBA player. I'd go out there in the uh, alley at Dublin Friends and, and shoot baskets until I couldn't see it anymore and pretend I was John Havlicek or, or uh, uh, Clyde the Glide Frazier. Then I realized I wasn't going to grow past 5'8 or 5'9, and I got cut from the high school team, so I had to shift gears. So then I dreamed I was going to be a major league baseball player. And I'm here on record to say, that dream is still open, so (laughs) all they have to do is call me. That's all I'm going to say with that, all right? I dreamed I wanted to be an architect. My counselor at school, guidance counselor, said, you realize that involves math. I said, you're kidding me. All right, well, let's not go there. I dreamed I wanted to be a doctor. Do I even have to say anything about that in terms of blood drives? So you see, my dreams were just all over the place. Oh, then I said, I dream of being a pastoral minister of the best Quaker meeting ever in Quakerdom. And folks, I have arrived. (laughs) I'm out of here. So... (laughs) I was going to drop a mic, but then we'd have to pay for it, and we don't want to have to do that. <laughs> Dreams, they have a way of imagining a different future. Carrie sang that beautiful song. They provide us a picture of what can be. So in our dreaming, we, we realize we may not be there yet, but it's the direction we want to go in. And in our dreams, we see what is possible, and it pulls us forward. The Old Testament prophets really were just some of the original dreamers in the Bible. Dreaming of a day in which creation would be restored, weapons would be turned into tools for farming and cultivating crops, and humanity would no longer learn war, and as the scripture says, the lion would lie down with the lamb. In other words, there would be no more predatory living. There would be this cessation of rivalry, a cessation of the strong exploiting the weak. All of the prophets from Malachi, from from Amos, from Hosea, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah. They weren't, just, they weren't just giving us dates about things that will necessarily happen like they're fortune tellers. They were just simply saying, I dream of a future that will be like this. This is how God intended, intends it. And it pulls us forward into what can be and what is possible. Jesus followed in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And he was more than just a prophet, but he lived within that tradition through his teaching and his living. And through his teaching, he not only showed us how to live God's dream, but he expanded it and he built on what the law and the prophets gave us. And he even says that in the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm telling you is, he says, is more than just what the law and prophets. I'm not doing away with it, but I am building on it. And it comes from the heart. And he gave us some very simple, simple directives like, love your enemies. Like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This this Sermon on the Mount in which he says, this really is how God intended life to be. In fact, I would even go as far to say this. He says, if you really want to live a fulfilled life, a life full of meaning, a life full of energy, a life that, that just sort of grabs you and wakes you up in the morning, this is it, which is so counterintuitive. Because a lot of my dreams... Sometimes I've I've tried to fabricate my own life. I've tried to fabricate my own plan. I've tried to fabricate my own outcomes. And what I've learned is the more I align my dreams with this God dream, the more I am fulfilled. The more meaning comes alive. 
Michael Curry is uh, the current bishop of the Episcopal Church. You may not know him by name, but if you saw the recent royal wedding, who was it that got married? Mary and Megan. Whoa, Mary Ann. <laughs> she was on that, wasn't she? So our, uh, our, our royal official over here, Harry and Megan, Michael Curry gave the message at their wedding. Now, this isn't a quote from his message, but this is what he has to say. God has a dream. God has a dream, a vision, a plan, a sublime divine purpose for this world. God has a dream for his creation, a dream for every man, woman, and child who ever walked upon the face of the earth. And God will not rest until our nightmare is ended and God's dream is realized. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what he came to show us. He came to show us the way to live God's dream instead of our own nightmare. He came to show us the way to be truly and authentically and genuinely human as God intended and created us. Victor Hugo, who was a few years prior to Michael Curry, French novelist and poet, said this, there is nothing like a dream to create the future. That's what the prophets are doing. That is what Jesus is doing. This dream that they give us, which we often go by the kingdom of God in the scriptures, this dream of God, we are simply, in effect, helping to create this future, and you and I are invited into that journey, and we're invited into that dream. Now, to see what Jesus is all about, we go to the Gospels, the record of Jesus' life and teachings and actions. And in the Gospels, we get to see what God is like in the person of Jesus. We get to see what the kingdom of God looks like in the actions of Jesus. We get to see this dream of God for creation in the life and teachings and witness of Jesus. And what we see in this short story that was read just a few moments ago is a glimpse of God's dream, and it's playing out in all the other stories in the Gospels. That of restoring back to wholeness, that which has been damaged, that which has been crippled, and that which is withered. But it's not just this story, but it's in all the other stories in this chapter. In fact, these are not just random stories. If you go through chapter 2 up until this story that Sloan just read, what you see is that there is this intentional effort on the part of the gospel writer Mark to show us God's intent and God's dream for creation, the kingdom of God. You have the healing of the paralytic and the support of others who carried him to Jesus. I preached on that last week. You have the scene where Jesus meets Levi, the tax collector, and he goes to his house in Mark 2 to eat dinner, which is a sign of welcome, a sign of acceptance, along with all the other sinners and tax collectors. And by the way, whenever you read the Bible and you see sinners and tax collectors in quotes, that's kind of an editorial comment, but the reason that is is because back in that day, all of the religious leaders... And the power brokers basically classified people who were either in or out. If you were out, you were a sinner. If you were in, then you weren't. And the sinners were based on people who weren't them, were based on race, were based on whether they were crippled, were based on whether they had physical infirmity, were based on whether they had committed acts that were outside the law. And if you were a tax collector, you got considered to be a sinner as well. So you had these people that were on the margins, on the outside, and Jesus has dinner with them. The kind of folks the power brokers of the day felt were not worthy to receive God's love. You have a scene where Jesus' disciples are hungry, so they're picking the heads of the wheat to eat on the Sabbath. And again, the religious gatekeepers of the day were upset because it was a Sabbath. And Jesus declares that the Sabbath was created for humans. Humans were not created for the Sabbath. In other words, Sabbath 
serves humanity. That's why it exists. And then you have this scene again on the Sabbath where Jesus goes into the synagogue, sees a man with a withered hand, and basically asks, which is the most compassionate and righteous thing to do? To heal this man and break Sabbath rules or to follow your human-made rules and allow this man to suffer? Now, you, you take all of these scenes together. You have Jesus embodying such words as this, compassion, restoration, acceptance, welcome, wholeness, freedom, solidarity with the excluded, with the marginalized and the suffering, hospitality, love of neighbor, grace, mercy, justice, and kindness. In essence, you have Jesus living this embodiment of God's dream. In other words, Jesus is living the dream. Now, we use that phrase a lot today, but we mean it in another context. In this context, Jesus is living the dream of God. And you and I are invited to live this same dream as well. A few years ago, I went into the Starbucks over here. Um, Shock, I know, but I went into the Starbucks. And there was a sign. It was an ad campaign that they had. It was about 15 years ago, 14, 15, and it was Everything Matters. And I thought that was fascinating because what they were saying was everything matters from from how your drink is served, to whether your name is called right, to whether there's paper on the floor, to whether we have clean restrooms. We are going to make sure that every little thing we do leads up to you having a positive experience, which I find ironic that they may need to return back to that motto and reaffirm that, that everything matters, and they've been working hard at that. Now, when I think of us, when I think of our participation in God's dream, if you will, God's intended dream for this future, all of creation, I think everything matters. Everything we do matters. Every act that we act on matters. Every, every, every artistic creation, every, every gesture, every uh, place that we participate, everything we do matters. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, and this is what he has to say about that. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, by preaching, by singing, by sewing, by praying, by teaching, by building hospitals, by digging wells, by campaigning for justice, by writing poems, by caring for the needy, by loving your neighbor as yourself, it will last into God's future. And these activities are not simply ways of making the present a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it all behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Or, we would say, helping make God's dream come true. In this story, there are three people in the story, or three scenes And I'm going to let you finish this sermon and ask yourself who you are in this story. First is the person with the withered hand. Comes to Jesus. Jesus comes into the synagogue and sees this man with this withered hand. And everybody asks, or Jesus asks, is it better to observe the Sabbath or is it better to do good and heal this man? And when I think of the withered hand, I think of a withered heart. I think of withered joy. I think of people who have withered relationships and withered hope. 
God's kingdom in Jesus draws near to us who feel withered in any way. And so the living Christ speaks to our condition and restores wholeness to our withered condition. So is that who you are in this story? Maybe you're Jesus. In other words, am I the presence of Jesus in my world? Am I his hands? Am I his feet? Am I his heart and soul? Am I the one who offers welcome and hospitality? Am I the one who grieves and even finds myself angry at times at the lack of compassion for those suffering, those who have unyielding and hard hearts at the way tradition sometimes overrules love and compassion? Am I that person? And then there are those in the crowd, the bystanders, the religious folks, if you will, who stand silent and unyielding when Jesus asks what's more important. To live in the freedom of love, to live in compassion and hospitality and mercy, or to live in the imprisonment of all the legalisms and the rules, if you will, that they have to abide by. When I posed this question to myself, I asked myself, which one am I? And I realized I'm all three. I've been all three. There have been times where I've had a withered soul. There have been times where I've had just a withered journey, a withered heart, and I need to stretch out my life. I need to stretch out myself to Jesus and say, I just need to be restored and made whole again. This is your dream. Your dream, Jesus, is to restore and make people whole. This is what I need. Sometimes I have been Jesus' presence in this world, reaching out to folks, wondering and if my actions matter, but trying to do what I can to offer compassion, trying to do what I can to offer love and kindness, trying to do what I can to offer solidarity for those who are suffering, for those who are hurting, for those who are abused, trying to offer that as the hands and feet of Jesus. But the one that I didn't want to admit is that sometimes I'm the one in the crowd standing silent. I'm the one when Jesus looks around at everybody and says, what shall we do here? Shall we bring wholeness to this? Shall we bring healing to this? Shall we bring restoration to this? Or shall we just let it be and follow the dominant culture of the world and play by the rules and play by the power brokers? And sometimes I have been that one in the crowd who has stood silent and I have not used my voice on behalf of others on behalf of those who are hurting, on behalf of those who are in need, on behalf of those who need someone to be there for them and to champion them and to raise them up. So God has a dream for this creation. Living well, in my thinking, has to do with combining my life and my dream with God's dream. But God has a dream that involves offering ourselves, our withered lives, our withered souls, and asking for his help. God has a dream where we become his presence in this world, just like Jesus, and we are Jesus' presence in this world. Or God has a dream where sometimes I have to be aware that I've been silent too long, and I need to use my voice on whatever way I need to use my voice to bring life and hope and humanity to others. So which one are you? Which one are you this morning? Which one do you want to be in the future?